Someone once said, the proper purpose of all Christian preaching is to so proclaim Christ that by God's grace our hearers will be profoundly affected. And that is my goal and aim this morning, beloved, that as I share God's word with you, that you will be profoundly affected to be more like Jesus Christ. We're going to read from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. And I'm going to read it slowly, and as I read it, just, just, just absorb it and, and meditate upon it, because this is the text that I would like us to share with one another this morning. So it reads as follows. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The big I, the one who had control of my life, my goals, my plans, and my dreams of how I wanted my life to be, or rather how I thought it should be. But then one day, it was uprooted by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no longer about me. The text says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's about Jesus Christ. Christ was crucified for me. The text says, Christ lives in me. He is now in control, or should be in control. I should be reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. Christ's selflessness, Christ's servanthood, the fruit of the Spirit. I should be living by the Spirit. I should be led by the Spirit of Christ and not reflecting my old nature, character, and lifestyle. The part of the text I would like us to concentrate on this morning is I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There are questions that arise and hopefully answered as we go along. Why should I no longer live? What are the challenges for me, the I, if Christ lives in me? We would all agree that the I, the old nature, the carnal nature, causes us much grief, pain, and heartache. From the beginning of time, man has always had problems with the I. It's I, me, myself, and then others. In the story of Naaman, uh, the leper, who the Bible says was a great commander of a great army. The Bible goes on to say that he was a great man, highly respected. When the prophet Elisha sent his servant to Naaman with instructions how to be healed, Naaman was furious because he thought and he said to himself, I, this great man, I thought the man of God would come out to meet me. The big I always thinking they're better than others because of their status. In the garden, when God asked Adam, have you eaten from the forbidden tree? His answer was, I ate. But 
The woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. The big eye takes no responsibility, but passes the buck. The rich man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One thing you lack, Jesus says to him, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. The eye, eye was not prepared to do any of the above. And this young man went away sad. The big eye is selfish. The big eye don't want to share. And the big eye is self-centered. Mark tells us the disciples disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. It's about me. It's about the big eye. Who must always be in charge, seen and heard? The rich man in Luke said, I will pull down my bonds. I will build greater bonds. I will store my crops. I will say to my soul, you have many goods for many years. I will take my ease. I will eat. I will be merry. That night, his soul was required of him. Jesus warning about not being rich towards God. Seven times the big eye was mentioned and not once did he mention the name of God. Peter, Lord, I will die for you. And a little later, I don't know this man. It's about the big eye, safety and reputation. We cry, I'm not respected. I'm not acknowledged. I'm not greeted. I was not informed. And the list goes on and on and on. It's about the big I, me, myself. You see, beloved, the big old nature I needs to be crucified. It needs to die. The big old nature I must no longer live. The I that was redeemed must live by faith in the Son of God. The redeemed I must allow Jesus Christ to live through and in him. Who is the big I? It's the old Adamic nature. It's the ego, the self-reliant, the proud, the idolatrous, world-loving, world-worshipping, self-worshipping that opposes the reign of Christ in your life. You see, where there is too much I, there is too little Christ. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. The hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus indeed paid it all because the text tells me that Jesus made a way to deal with that big I. Number one, in our text it says that Christ loved me. Romans says, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Number two, Christ gave himself for me. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. The book of Timothy goes on to say, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Number three, Christ was crucified. Luke says that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Mark goes on to say, and it was the third hour and they crucified him. Jesus was crucified. Number one, it was voluntary. He says, I lay down my life of my own accord. Number two, it was painful. Nails, thorns, and the rest. Number three, it was lonely. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
And number four, it was submission to God's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. Number five, its outcome was death. It is finished, and he gave up the ghost. And because I've been crucified with him, Romans says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, I no longer live. Colossians says, for ye are dead, and your life is hid in Christ. The book of Corinthians says, and he, that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth live, not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Number five, so I no longer live. The I has to be crucified. The I must be crucified daily. It must be voluntary. I want to die to self and the world. Number two, it's going to be painful. Denying the self and the world is painful. Number three, it's going to be lonely. You're on your own. Number four, it must be submissive to God's will. And number five, its outcome must be death. The old man must die. Number six, Christ lives in me. The book of Romans says, but if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. And the book of Ephesians says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And because Jesus loved me, because he gave himself for me, because he was crucified for me, and because I've been crucified with him, and because Christ lives in me, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for me. Beloved, dying and being crucified means that the things of the old nature are put to death. Most especially the sinful ways and the lifestyle we once engaged in. I don't want to live according to my old nature. I want Christ's life to be lived through me. But beloved, we have opposition. We have a pushback. There are those who don't want me and us to die to self or me and us to live for Christ. The I, the me, the us who wants to live for Jesus has three enemies, three deadly enemies, constantly wanting and fighting for our attention and demanding our participation and allegiance, opposing God and our obedience to him and to his teachings. And the older we get, the pressure seems to increase for us to compromise. It's a daily battle we cannot avoid, beloved. We, as God's children, are at war with these enemies. The Bible speaks about putting on the full armor of God. The Bible says the weapons we fight with are not carnal. Fight the good fight of faith. Resist, stand. All speaks about a battle, a fight, a war. Ephesians goes on to say, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They, our enemies, are ruthless, determined to destroy our relationship with God. The three enemies we have to contend with was, is number one, the world, our visible enemy. Number two, the flesh, the enemy that lives inside us. 
Number three, the devil, also known as Satan, Lucifer, the serpent, the evil one, our supreme enemy. Let's look at the devil, our supreme enemy. You may say, Rodney, the devil, what about him? You see, we don't hear much about our enemy, the devil, these days. But it does not mean he's not real and not active and that he stopped being our enemy and the enemy of Jesus Christ. Now, um, you may ask, Rodney, do you believe there is a devil? And why do you believe? Now, before I ask that, answer that question, I did a little uh, uh, survey, um, people on the road and people that I met, and I asked them this question, do you believe in a devil? And this is the response I got. The one said, Rodney, it's the figment of man's imagination. Someone else says, there is good and evil, but we cannot attribute it to the devil. Someone else says, we must not personalize our evil to the devil. We must take ownership. Someone else says, oh, well, I spoke to a Muslim guy and he says, no, 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 Rodney, I, I, I believe that the devil, the devil exists. Then I asked someone else, and this person says, I face challenges and I believe it's the devil hindering me. Someone else says, I believe in God and there is evil, but the devil, maybe by some other name. And then the last person that asked, they says, I believe there is a devil. You see, some believe there is a devil, some don't believe, and some are not sure. Well, what about me? Do I believe? Do you believe? Well, let me answer for myself. Yes, I do believe there is a devil. And here are the reasons. Because the Bible tells me so. Secondly, because Jesus had encounters with the devil. And thirdly, some years ago, I attended on two occasions a Christian gathering where the devil manifested him himself. So Matthew records that Jesus was tempted by the devil. The devil came to Jesus. The devil took Jesus to the highest point of the temple. And then the devil left Jesus. Luke says, after the temptation of Jesus, the devil departed from Jesus until opportune time which means he would be back to tempt Jesus again. In the book of Acts, it's recorded that Ananias and Sapphira, why had Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And Luke tells us, after supper, then Satan entered Judas Iscariot's heart. Paul says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. That's why I believe in the devil, because the Bible tells me so. The devil, the main influence of the flesh and world, has an agenda. The word of God says the devil wants to destroy us. He wants to take advantage of us. He wants to hinder us. He's our adversary, roaring like a lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. He's a murderer. He's come to rob, to steal, to kill. He's a liar and the father of it. There is no truth in him. He, the devil, has sinned from the beginning. He will try to disrupt your focus on God and his work, discourage you, and will stop at nothing using the world and your own nature to destroy your relationship with Christ. James 4.7 says, we must submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee 
from you. The book of Ephesians says, Give neither place for the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that he may stand against the wiles of the devil. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He, the devil, is opposed to this. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, destroyed, conquered, made an open show of the devil. You just need to read the Bible to see what all Jesus did to our enemy, the devil, for us. The first book of John says, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Born, ministered for three years, died and rose again, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are destroyed. Let's look at the, third, the second one, the flesh. The enemy that lives inside us. The flesh is the carnal, natural, worldly side of man. Every one of us has to deal with the flesh. No matter how long you've known Jesus as your Savior, and no matter how spiritual you may be, getting saved does not remove the battle with the world, devil, and the flesh. As long as you are alive, you're going to battle with the world, devil, and the flesh. On the cross, Jesus crucified the flesh's power, not its presence, nor its influence. You and I have the responsibility to crucify the desires and passions of the flesh. The book of Galatians says the spirit of God and the flesh are in conflict with each other. The book of Romans says the flesh cannot please God. The book of Philippians says we serve God by spirit and we put no confidence in the flesh. Galatians got this long list. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Martin Luther was persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. He was no friend of the Pope, but on one occasion he said, I am more afraid of my own heart than the Pope of Rome, because in my heart there dwells this great Pope called self, the flesh, the enemy that lives inside us. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The flesh is opposed to you, allowing Christ to live in you and through you. Let's look at the world, our visible enemy. The world with its systems, values, conduct, and beliefs are contrary to God's teachings. The world wants us as Christians to be sympathetic to other religious beliefs and teachings. There's a drive to have interfaith services as long as Jesus is excluded. Now, my wife and I, we attended an a interfaith um, service and dinner some years ago. There was Jews, there was Muslims, and different denominations of Christians. Um, and we had a good time chatting and getting to know people, and the food was good. And then the Jewish um, guy got up, and he had his talk, and then the Christian got up and he had his talk and then the Muslim got up and he had his talk but beloved Jesus was not mentioned once 
he was excluded. But Jesus Christ said that he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by him. How can we exclude him, beloved? Peter says in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Philippians says, the God that created the universe, the God that put every star into place, the same God has given Jesus a name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The book of Timothy says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. You see, we cannot exclude and ignore Jesus Christ. The world wants us to accept and believe we all pray to the same God. It brings about a unity among a divided religious society. The world champions materialism. Work hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. Forgetting about the meaning and purpose of life. Jesus says, what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And then, beloved, we have the world's strong views on homosexuality, same-sex marriages, transgender issues, abortion, etc. The world wants us as followers of Jesus to embrace and agree with above. It's so easy to be sympathetic, accommodating, understanding to all the world has to offer. The world says we as followers of Jesus must be tolerant at the expense of following Jesus' teachings. I just read a, a few weeks ago, the Church of England is considering to vote for gender-neutral terms for God. They're considering whether to stop calling God Father. They're also allowing priests to bless same-sex marriages that gay couples would be allowed to come to church after civil marriage to give thanks, dedicate their relationship to God, and receive God's blessings. Whenever we offer resistance to the world, then we become victims of the world. Worldliness is defined as being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life, accepting the values and practices of the nice but unbelieving society around us, without discerning whether or not those values and practices are biblical. But you see, beloved, the world is not our standard we measure ourselves with. Jesus' life and teaching is the standard. The world is not our source of information on how to live a godly life. The Bible is our source of information, and the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. The world wants you to believe, accept, and adhere to its worldview. If not, it will bully you, threaten, and ridicule you. Your actions and motives misrepresent it. You will be despised by the world. Your Christian beliefs and teachings you adhere to described as out of date. The world wants us as followers of Jesus to adjust our message so to avoid being hostile and offensive. The voice of God's people is not heard as clearly and openly as once it was. Most often silenced and not tolerated. 
The world strongly encourages us to accumulate as much wealth as we can and then take our ease, eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to be here for a long time. The world's teachings must be despised. It must be rejected. Its pleasures, honor, and treasures rejected. Its threats must be made nothing of. The worldview system is soon to pass away. J.C. Riley, a former bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, wrote this. The world, flesh, and the devil are our chief foes whom the Christian must wage war against. But with a corrupt heart, a busy devil, and ensnaring will, the Christian must either fight or be lost. He says the flesh after conversion carry within them a nature prone to evil and a heart weak and unstable as the water. He goes on to say the love of the world's goods, the fear of the world's laughter or blame, the secret desire to keep in with the world, the secret wish to do as others in the world do, all these are spiritual foes which beset the Christian continually on their way to heaven and must be conquered. He says the devil, that old enemy of mankind, is not dead. He has been going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it and striving to compass one great end, the ruin of a person's soul, never slumbering and never sleeping. He's always near us, carrying on a campaign against our soul, always going around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The book of John says, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do not be surprised, John says, if the world hates you. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. John goes on to say, do not love the world or anything that's in the world. James says, if you become a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. First John says, you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The world opposes the idea you no longer live, but Christ lives in you and rules in you. Beloved, in regard to the flesh, Romans 6 says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now, if we died with Christ, we will also live with him. The book of Galatians says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In response, in regard to the world, Galatians says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That self-reliant, proud, idolatrous, world-loving, world-worshipping self died when I trusted in Christ because I was united with him in his death. Do you want Jesus Christ's life to be manifested through you? His power, his love, his amazing grace, his truth, his humility, his obedience, his purity, his compassion, his beauty. If you want that, you have to be crucified to the flesh and the world. You have to die 
to the flesh and the world. You have to be dead to the flesh and the world. Colossians 3 says, For you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Therefore, put to death your members. You, beloved, have to put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man. Jesus came into the world in order to help us live for him in the world. Jesus came in the flesh to obey so that we could not live as slaves to our flesh. Jesus conquered the devil by defeating death and showing, and, and showing he holds the keys to life and death. Though the world, the flesh, and the devil would seek to undo us, we have a victorious Savior who has severed their power and dominion. We fight against their presence by the power of the Spirit who now dwells within us. Paul says, I am crucified. I am dead. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. How about you? How about me? Beloved, how are we on a daily basis reacting to our enemies, the devil, flesh, and the world? How are you reacting to the devil? Are you submitting to God? Are you resisting the devil? Have you got the whole armor of God on you? How are you reacting to the flesh? Are you putting your confidence in the flesh? Is there too much I and too little of Christ? Is the old man crucified? Are you dead to self? Are you living unto self or unto him who died for you? How are you reacting to the world? Are you accommodating the world? Do you love the world? Are you a friend of the world? Have you been crucified to the world? Beloved, this is what we must confess. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Amen.